0: Welcome back to the Para Sports Nutrition Podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today, it's my great pleasure to introduce to you Stuart Sharp and Daniel Wartner. Stuart is the Senior Director of Extended National Teams for US Soccer. And Daniel is the Extended National Teams Sports Scientist for US Soccer. So welcome to the podcast guys.
1: Thanks, Liz. Pleasure to be here.
2: Thank you, Liz. Yeah, same.
0: So I'm going to take you one by one. Tell us a bit about your background and how you got into coaching and, and being a sports scientist for soccer. So Stuart, do you want to start us off?
1: Yeah. So Liz, my, my journey, as some of your listeners might be able to pick up, started in in Scotland, um, mm-hmm. where I first worked with the, the Scottish Football Association, as their National Development Manager for Disability Soccer, which at, at that time I over I was overseeing from a national perspective, coach education, grassroots soccer, and and national teams for individuals with with disabilities and, and building their structures. Mm-hmm. So that, that was really the start of my journey. And and actually, funnily enough, I, I was just thinking before we come on, uh, it's our twenty year anniversary, Liz. I think we met yeah. in Scotland. Right? <laughs> 2003 when you delivered <laughs> that education course there when you were with the Institute of Sport. So uh-huh. um, so yeah, I, I started off there with the Scottish FA and my journey then took a little sab- sabbatical out of, of soccer. I did mm-hmm. some sport and conflict resolution All and right. uh, during that time uh, I was working at London 2012 as mm-hmm. a technical delegate for soccer and met some Board members at the from the US Soccer Federation, and mm-hmm. in 2014, I then became the, the head coach of their CP, their Paralympic national team, uh, yep. and in 2019, I then became the took took up this position I have now as the senior director for the extended national teams department. And, and I know this is a long-winded intro, but I just want to, when people hear Extended National Teams, uh, I, I just want to explain a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, um, go for
1: it. Extended National Teams department is, if you think about it, an extension of the regular uh, Living side game. So so we have uh, in our department nine national teams, uh, four mm-hmm. being non, non-disability. We have beach soccer men and women, futsal men and women, and then we have five from the disability national team category. We have CP soccer men and women, the one that we'll probably focus on today. We have mm-hmm. deaf men and women, and we have power chair, which is a co-ed, a co-ed sport. So so yeah, the extending national teams department keeps Daniel and, and myself busy.
0: Oh, it sounds like it. Yeah, for sure. And Daniel, how did you get into being a sports scientist for soccer?
2: So I did my undergrad at Berry College where I, I played four years, um, soccer, and then I studied exercise science. After, after Barry, I went to Leeds to do a master's program in sports psychology. Learned a wow. lot there, loved that, but it was uh, not something that I, I fully wanted to to pursue. I, mm-hmm. I figured it would definitely help in, in my career, but I decided that I wanted to do a little bit more something hands-on with athletes. That's um, where I, I really yep. enjoy being. So I came back to to the States and I did several internships for collegiate strength and conditioning. I worked with uh, all the sports at, at Harvard, all sports there. I worked with mm-hmm. uh, football at the College of the Holy Cross. And then I worked with uh, Olympic sports at University of Georgia. So ah. I did several internships, found that, that the the strength and conditioning world is, is really something that I enjoyed. Um, mm-hmm. From that, I kind of, Segued into the sports science realm, uh, working with Atlanta United's academy teams. So that was a little bit more, more on the side of, of sports science and more principles relating to that field expertise rather than just strength and conditioning. Right. Um, so that that was kind of my transition into that, and and learned a lot there. And then I met Stuart around around that time, mm-hmm. and I had no idea what what Paralympic soccer was. Um, <laughs> So I, he, uh, we, we met for, uh, for coffee one day, and, and he described uh, you know what the sport is and, and how it's mm-hmm. played and the differences from, from the regular game. And that was in 2019, and I, I took a chance and working with the with the para team, went down to a camp, absolutely loved it, loved the team, mm-hmm. loved the environments. And from that point on, in January 2019, I've been with the extended national team. So it started with just the men's para team, Uh, And I think we had men's, men's beach team at that time. And that was essentially it. So just two teams and to see it grow to nine teams now in in 2023, it's, it's been uh, quite an incredible journey.
0: Wow. Yeah, indeed. And so, I mean, you, you said that you've got a, a number of para programs, but we are going to focus more on the CP side because it's the one that you've had the most experience with. Can you, kind of tell us about the sport of CP soccer and how it's different from the able-bodied version of soccer. And we're saying soccer, some people say football. What's the most correct? I think in the US it's soccer?
1: Yeah, it's soccer in the the US, but I suppose the official name for even even the sport is, is CP football.
0: CP football. Okay, so let's call it by its correct name. So tell us a little bit about what CP football looks like and how it differs to able-bodied football?
1: Yeah, as, as you mentioned there, CP football is, is probably from the disability disciplines in our department, and the one that's been in there the, the longest. Really, the, the main differences, if, if we start with a framework of the regular, for want of a better phrase, a living in a side game, some of the major differences are, one, it's 7 aside. Uh, yep. two, the, the players that actually Uh, are who are eligible and the the name CP means cerebral palsy uh, which is really in in layman's terms a a stroke uh, that happens at birth or within the first two years uh, Mm -hmm. after after birth lack of oxygen to the brain creating an impairment and and that impairment for CP football has to manifest itself as a level of of motor dysfunction meaning tightness of a limb are some some balance issues so Mm -hmm. that would be how the cerebral palsy side comes into to the game but in addition to just uh, players with cerebral palsy individuals who have had a stroke at at one point in their life are also eligible Mm -hmm. as as well as players who've had a a traumatic brain injury uh, because the the way that both those disabilities occur. The impairments are very similar to, to CP. Again, mm-hmm. weakness uh, on one side of the body or some balance issues. So so we really, in, in terms of the players that we see, first of all, come from a variety of backgrounds, right? You've, you've got some people who are born with a disability mm-hmm. learning to play the sport compared to soccer players who have maybe acquired a disability at later point adapting yep. to, to to the sport. So that's how you'd be eligible. Some of the other differences apart from it being seven aside, there's no offside in in the game uh oh, okay. the game is 60 minutes in duration mm-hmm. and one of the other biggest rules really are, are differences to the 11 side game and i would love to see this in the fifa version is that uh, <laughs> if you think about the standard the one when you throw it overhead you're allowed to do that but you're also allowed to to roll it in underarm yep. like a like in 10 10 bowling you're, you're allowed to put okay. it in like that and that was, and that's in the rules because that some some of the players maybe only have use of one one upper limb so they're able to th- to roll it in yep. but you know as i say an 11th side maybe that would get the game working a lot quicker so yeah seven aside, no offside throw in rules a little bit different and it's 60 minutes and in, in duration with two halves mm-hmm. of, of 30.
0: And is it played on the same size of field as the the standard game?
1: No, the the field is a little bit shorter than the 11 side field. It's uh, mm-hmm. seventy meters by by fifty. So again, if, if you're imagining the the 11 side field, think about top of the D of each penalty box to, to so top of the D to top of the D, and mm-hmm. then if you're walking in from an 11 side field, maybe taking eight or nine steps in from from the side so with no offside right. i've got to say it's a really really big field for sevens um mm. you know daniel maybe they'll be able to speak about this a little bit later but in terms of physical demand it's extremely high because yeah. the, the game is so spread out with no offside and such a big field so it's uh, yeah, yeah. So that so was going to be my power. next
0: question: is is so how do you see the physiological demands of that seven aside game, Daniel, and and how that differs from say a, an able bodied game?
2: Yeah, I think the main difference in in sevens versus 11s is there's really no time off on on the ball. There's no time. You can't. I mean, in, in 11s you can get away with. You know, walking at certain times of the field, kind of hiding, mm-hmm. taking plays yeah. off in sevens. You are directly involved in in play at at all times. Um, mm-hmm. So it becomes more of a reliance on really the anaerobic system versus the uh, the eleven a side game. There is it's just constant high intensity efforts, and of course there is you know slower periods of the games, but especially in, in games that it's it's a lot of counter and transitions. Um, they're reaching a, a lot. A high output of high intensity running, and in sprints mm. and accelerations, decelerations. It's all I would say extrapolated to the eleven aside game. All of these metrics would be higher if they played ninety minutes. So they are yep. they are just constantly in a state of of high intensity work for the most part.
0: Yep, and because they've got some instabilities by the sheer nature of having CP have you got any assessment of their energy demands or any indicators of the actual total calories that they get through in a game?
2: Uh, yes. And it's, it's relatively, uh, I haven't really looked into how it, how it relates to the 11 a side game in terms of their energy expenditure. But I know that's from, from what I've seen, there is an increased energy expenditure, especially for players with CP or, or TBI. Uh, or stroke yep. there's there's extra work that needs to be done especially on one side of the body which is going to increase energy expenditure especially on that side so it's that's really the only thing that i see as as that would be different there i know that's yeah. not a great answer to your question but
1: okay. you mentioned that uh, and as daniel pointed out in terms of energy expenditure and it is something that's a little bit different in our game as well that mm-hmm. there's classification as as we yep. see in a lot of power And to simplify it, in CP football, we, we have three classifications. We have one, two, three, and it's a sliding yep. scale. You know, one being, for want of a better phrase, the, the most impaired to three being the, the least impaired. And what we yep. do see uh, when we look at the metrics, all, all the players wear GPS units in training and in games, we do see a difference in the the energy expenditure between a, a C, you know, a class one athlete yep. and, and a, a class three in, in different ways. You know, Daniel can, can speak to this in terms of the speed that uh, a three will, will get to an FT3 will get to compared to, to an FT1. But mm-hmm. when we look at heart rate, sometimes it doesn't always marry up because essentially if your are in impairment levels higher, you're not working biomechanically as, as efficient.
0: Yep. And, to stay on that topic, how does how do those classifications then interact with the game? Can you only have a certain balance of those classes on the field at one time? A bit like wheelchair rugby, where there's a, a total point system, and you can only have a set number of you know to even out the play, so you can't stack it with all of your threes rather than not having many of your ones.
1: Yeah, and this what it makes it interesting between Daniel and I uh, on on match day here. <laughs> Uh, because and, and actually in terms of recovery as well we can touch on that but first of all to answer your question uh we're only allowed one ft3 on on the field at a time uh, Right. you must always have an ft1 someone of a higher impairment on on the field at all times or yep. or play with six players right so you would always have one ft1 and then try to get one ft3 on the field but as you would imagine, during a game, it's, it's easy starting that way. But the game evolves, whether it be through injuries or let's hope not, but maybe a red card. And mm. the communication is, is so key here because Daniel might be warming up some players uh, down at the corner flag. Uh, yep. Myself and the assistant coach will be working on strategies and at the same time, we're, we're counting on our fingers how many FT1s <laughs> that we need. F2. If that yep. maybe the complexity, it doesn't maybe sound that complex, but trust me, if an FT1's an outfield player and he's the one that's getting injured, well, suddenly you're making two substitutions because maybe you're mm. having to put an FT1 in goals, so you're taking your goalkeeper out. So yep. with, with Daniel, we're constantly communicating. Uh, about mm-hmm. which players are to get warmed up and, and ready to to come on at a moment's notice and and then post game, which again makes it interesting compared to living aside, you're at a World Cup. Uh, mm-hmm. normally you would have maybe two or three days between competition. As as you know, Liz, that doesn't happen in, in Paris sport. No, we maybe have no. a day of turnaround. So mm-hmm. we're asking some players to recover very quickly. Uh, yeah. So, because maybe that FT three has to play or that FT one has to play, so mm-hmm. the demands over the the two weeks on some individuals is is very high. So, during the game you're making decisions, but also recovery and post game to get them ready yeah. and you know two hours to play again is, is is vital as well.
0: Yeah, and so Daniel, do you think that the recovery side of things is impacted more by the impairment? So at FT one. Do they seem to take a little longer to fully recover because of the nature of their CP?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. I think in this entire group, recovery is is going to be affected. And especially with, with FT1s and you know, FT, FT2s, the, the more impair, more impairment that you have, the the more important it's going to be to recover and the more stress is going to be put on their muscles, on their joints, because they're in that constant state of contraction. And it's, it's just something, it's another factor to manage, especially on, you know, tournaments when we've, when we've got six games in the space of 10 days, two weeks, Yep, recovery is one of the most important things that's, you know, I'm, I'm there to do. We do a lot of work in the pool. We do a lot of foam rolling, stretching. Um, and of course, nutrition plays a huge role in, in recovery for these guys. So we really, Stuart mm-hmm. uh, and myself really hammered down on them the importance of nutrition, of getting a protein, correct amount of carbohydrates. So yeah, recovery yep. is is very important with this group.
0: And do you have to adjust your coaching as well, Stuart? Like in terms of is is there an adjustment that you make when you're coaching them in terms of just the nature of CP do they tend to fatigue more quickly particularly when it comes to doing skills or is it or do you pretty much treat them as any footballer
1: yeah my my starting point is it's just coaching the game right yeah. and with, with any with any athlete you work with there's going to be th- some things that they're they're very good at and there's going to be some weaknesses that you need to work on so it's no different than someone with with CP so we would work on strategies to work on weaknesses and and then enhance any any strengths that they have. So so as a global approach, that that would be how I would approach the game. But are there other considerations? Yeah. I mean something that Daniel and I talk about all the time when we're in competition across all our teams, but particularly CP is we talk about the accumulation of fatigue.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So you know, when we look at a tournament we really plan as much as you can, as much as you yeah. can, you know, to gain six. And we know things are going to change. We know it doesn't work like that. But how can we ensure that we have each athlete, especially those FT1s, as fresh as possible um, yeah. throughout, throughout the tournament, right? And and that, you know, that's that's key for us. And, and some things that Daniel does a great job, obviously, you know, we, we talked a little bit about uh, post-game, but even – we we need to make sure that we we're we're pre fueling. Sorry, easy for me to yep. say fuel, 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 fueling.
0: Pre <laughs> fueling.
1: Yeah, pre fueling.
0: Yeah, I still can't say it. Uh,
1: <laughs> and and also during the game, and, and some of the staff laugh laugh about this, but Daniel Daniel's used to it, and and is a big part of it. That apart from how we we prepare in the hotel and in terms of nutrition, and Daniel can go into that. When it when it comes to after the you know warm ups and at halftime we we have a very set routine that yep. we want to ensure that we're, we're topping up the players and also preventing any you know soft tissue injuries uh, mm-hmm. from this cumulative fatigue or or during the sport. And one example, and this is again the staff get annoyed a little bit with me with, me with this. That you know I, I learned very quickly that you know whether it be after warm-ups or at halftime, players don't drink enough, right? They don't eat mm-hmm. enough because they're either focusing on what's about to happen or what you know been said to them. Yep. So Daniel works very hard uh, to ensure that, yeah, everyone's got a squeezy water bottle. But yep. in addition to that, every player will want to have one cup of parade or or whatever we've been sponsored by at that time uh, yep. and a cup of water. And uh-huh. each player will, will have to drink those. And then they yep. can move on to their water bottle because that ensures at least they're getting something in uh, yep. and we can monitor that and then top up beyond that. And, you know, Daniel also has some snacks and, and some other things as well during the game. So, so yeah, we, we, we're we watching them during the game. We're watching them throughout the tournament in terms of fatigue, but we're trying to stay ahead of it in the hotel yep. and, and in yep. the, the locker room as well.
0: Yeah. And, Daniel... When you're coaching, and, you know, in terms of the strength and conditioning side of things, do you manage that? Because obviously these teams aren't centralised. They're, they're decentralised teams and they come together for, for camps and for tournaments. Do you do a lot of their programming or does some of that programming from a strength and conditioning side of things happen in, in their own home areas? Are you liaising with other coaches?
2: Uh, yes we have a we have a team program that I'm constantly updating, which allows us to uh, to go in and and deliver um, strength conditioning programs. They can pull up their exercises for today. they can see videos mm-hmm. uh, exercise exercise cues, instructions on how to do the exercises. so it's it's really been great for us to be able to have that to use because as you said, this is a national team, and I'm really not able to be with them in the gym unless. Mm-hmm there's a chance at camp or at a tournament to get in and and do some movements, but that's the nature of a national team. So it's really, this app has really helped us to be able to deliver these to the athletes and also be able to monitor, you know, who's checking in, who's doing the work, but we have a, uh, we have a team program. And again, it's, we go through blocks depending on the time of the season. So uh, right now we're kind of in off season. We're doing a little bit more generic work working on uh aerobic capacity and really just uh hyper hypertrophy especially for these athletes is is going to be very important mm-hmm. again they do have kind of an increased energy expenditure just normal movements and you know the the impairments they it really affects affects their movements and affects their their muscle mass so yeah you know right right now in the off season that's that's what we're working on and of course we're building towards uh November competition at the Para Pan American Games and we're essentially looking to peak the athletes by the time we're at these games. So we're, mm-hmm. we go through kind of four to five week blocks of training and again just working on amping up till competition in November.
0: Mm-hmm. And so how much have you had to adapt your the way you program because of the nature of what they can physically do and the imbalances between, you know, one side or another. How much have you learned in terms of that individuality and how you have to kind of modify things to make sure that they're safe in the gym, but also that they can actually do the work that you're trying to do without fatiguing too much?
2: Right. Yeah. And especially with, with this group, you've got to have got variance. We have players that Literally cannot use one of their limbs. They can't use their arm, mm-hmm. or they can't properly do a squat. So each uh, each exercise, um, I've got to have a substitute exercise for a uh, players who say he can't do a push up. Well, I've got to have something else that can elicit the same results that that we're looking for that the player can actually do. So it's a mm-hmm. lot of just filling out the program more with regressions, progressions. Uh, we do have players that you wouldn't even be able to tell, like our, our threes, you can't tell they have any impairment. They can do everything mm. athletic, athletically. Um, so it's just a, it's a large variance within the group. So the main thing is just, you know, for me, is having substitute exercises, thinking of the guys that can't do these and, and having uh, a similar exercise, it's going to elicit the same results. Yep.
0: Yep. So from a nutrition perspective, we'll go back to what you said, Stuart, in terms of making them have at least one cup of water and one cup of sports drink. I think that's a fantastic strategy because at least it's measurable, whereas a water bottle isn't as easily measurable and and visible. What do you think are some of the key nutrition demands? And it might vary a little bit between training and competition. What are some of the areas that you focus on the most?
1: I'm going to let Daniel answer that, but I'll, I'll tell you <laughs> one of my biggest challenges and you yep. know and, and this has got better over the years uh especially the group that we're working with now but mm-hmm. one of the biggest challenges and daniel has ways of, of supporting me in this is that if we're at a competition and we again it's seven aside we've got 14 players in the squad you could be yep. away for three weeks mm-hmm. some of those players are playing more than others right but you're going to that meal room three times a day that Daniel's got a high performance room that he uses or snacks in. And Mm -hmm. some of those players aren't expending uh, as much energy as others, but they're, they're eating. All right. So my concern is always, as we get deeper into competition, as sometimes injuries come up or you're, you're having to, to rest certain players that those who haven't played a lot aren't gaining weight. And, Mm. you know, they're, their ability to perform is, is is not decreasing, and and I say this because, as you mentioned earlier, Liz, that this is decentralised. Uh, yeah. Our players have a professional mindset, but they're not always in professional environments, and, and and it's very tempting when you're sitting next to someone who's who's maybe played sixty minutes for three days to to think that your plate looks like their plate. Mm. Um. So so that's a big challenge for me, but. That Daniel has ways of managing that both in the high
2: performance room and, and in the meal room.
0: Yep. Okay, so Daniel, tell us about how you manage that.
2: Yeah, so with this group especially and and with all of our ENT teams, we like to be as visual as as possible to really boost uh, compliance and you know, if if we gave everyone a, an individual nutrition sheet, this is what you need to do, no one's no one's going to really adhere to that. So what we what we do have is mm-hmm kind of the, the meal plates based on how hard you train that day, for example. So we have uh-huh. a picture of a plate with all the macronutrients you should have on the plate and what proportions they should be depending on the training day. So we have an easy day, we have moderate training day, and then a hard training day, which would be our games yeah. or two-a-days. Um, mm-hmm. and basically, we we have these posters in the in the meal rooms. We have them in the high-performance rooms and i also send uh, each one of them individually the screenshot of them and we encourage them to basically just be conscious about what you're putting on your plate and and how you trained that day because if you're eating mm-hmm. again like the guy sitting next to you who just played a full 70 minutes and you know you didn't even get into the game over 2 weeks time at some of these tournaments that is going to that is going to add up and it is going to yeah. affect your performance and how you're moving and how mobile you are so we really try and stress the importance of following these guidelines. And again, it's it's something that I think is very it's visual and it's it should be easy for them to follow. And for the mm-hmm. most part, they do very well. And a lot of a lot of times at these tournaments, we also have things out of control in terms of we're at a buffet, and, you know, yeah. all all inclusive resort at a at a buffet. We're not really able to control what is put out. But we do try and control what what they're choosing to put on their plate. And again, that's where Stuart and I are kind of in the meal room with them monitoring. I try and stress water at every meal. They can have juice at breakfast. But again, a lot of these places just have juice and sodas available Mm -hmm. at all times. Um, So it's really just that that added necessity to really monitor what what they're doing. And again, I I notice that each camp we go to and the guys that have been around longer, their habits have have been starting to change in terms of their nutrition and and how they're viewing fueling their body versus just eating is, Mm. is really starting to improve with with a lot of these guys
0: yeah and as you said early on that some of the athletes come in having not necessarily been a footballer for a long period of time and so you know are you finding that that translates into all aspects of their football that they're still learning how to be an athlete per se rather than i just play football for fun.
2: Absolutely, yeah. That's that's one of the main things that Stuart and I really hone in on whenever we have the chance with these guys is you know, you we expect a professional atmosphere and we expect you to be to treat yourself as a professional athlete, to watch what you're yeah. putting into your body, to focus on recovery to you know give a hundred percent at training and in everything you do in terms of you know recovery, nutrition, hydration, to just really be a more complete professional athlete. Mm-hmm. And also we uh just in terms of, of monitoring as well, we we use an an app that the players will complete daily wellness questionnaires in, which will give us oh, more yeah. feedback mm-hmm. into their subjective well being. And this way we can also I'll take their their body weight measurements and they'll input that into the app, as well as grades according to stress, sleep quality, um, color of the urine in there, so we can help monitor hydration that way. And I send out a reminder. They they do that daily. And Stuart and I will usually meet in the morning, and we can discuss, you know, hey, guys, guys are looking great this morning, or hey, there's a, you know, haven't been sleeping well. I think the travel is kicking in. We might Mm -hmm. need to go a little bit lighter at training today. So it just gives us really some subjective feedback into how the how the players are feeling and allows us to kind of taper and adjust our, our training.
1: Right. And, and just to add to that, you know, that that morning meeting when, when the high-performance team will meeting, you know, it'll be the technical staff, it'll be the, the high-performance staff and medical staff, because it is, it is a team team approach. And, mm-hmm. you know, even in the, the dining room, it's a culture and team approach that we were... Daniel mentioned, you know, we were at a buffet and we were in a situation a couple of years ago at a World Cup. It was a large buffet situation, lots of teams there. And food mm-hmm. hygiene became became mm-hmm. the biggest issue. Um, yep. And I know, Liz, I know you've experienced this, especially at Olympics and, and, and Paralympic Games. You know, you're in the large dining hall. And, you know, we, we established a culture amongst the players about, you know, ensuring that, after they use a utensil, that they're not going straight and they're then sitting down and eating a bread roll because mm, you yep. need to clean your hands. So one of the things, I think it was Daniel, or it might have been our, our, our medical staff, we assigned two players, right? One player, I think I think he was called the germ worm, or I don't know what he called <laughs> him. But, uh, the basically, worm, the, the worm, worm germ, yeah. worm germ. Uh, yeah. So his, his job... His job was to bring hand sanitizer to to every every meal and make mm-hmm. sure that every player had it and then it was on every table. And, and likewise, you know, we're talking about buffets. Yep. We make this sound as if all our athletes and all our players will, will eat anything, as we know that they don't. Uh, <laughs> you know, sometimes they're quite fussy, or or maybe you're asking them to to load on protein before a game. Well, kickoff, mm-hmm. unfortunately, guys is nine thirty in the morning, so we we'll want you to eat that. That chicken leg at seven thirty. So, in mm. addition to the, the germworm, we had the, I think it was the, the, sauce, the, sauce, boss, the sauce sauce boss sauce boss, and uh, <laughs> this, this their, their job. You know, he carried around with them. You know, not just your tomato ketchup or tomato ketchup. If you're in uh, the UK and in Australia, you know, we had barbecue sauce. We had seasoning. We, we took all that with us as well. So uh, even at the yep. briefing, we had a way of ensuring. Or, or making the the meals more palatable even if you didn't like what was there. Uh, especially yep. if you're you're eating a chicken leg at, at seven AM in the morning. 7 a.m. Uh, <laughs> so, yep. so food hygiene and, and you know just flavouring the food sometimes is, is important yeah. as well. And that, that all comes into the reason I bring that up is in the mor- in these morning meetings, we're checking in all the time, but in these morning meetings, Daniel would talk about the wellness app. Our our yep. doctors would speak about health and then there would be a general overview, and that might be the assistant coach saying, Hey, I I didn't see Evan drinking enough or eating enough at lunch yesterday. Let's let's make let's find out why.
0: Yeah. So. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, it's a collaborative approach to to make sure that they're staying on track. So what recommendations would you have for I'll point this one at you, Daniel, you know, coming in from a background that wasn't in para and, you know, having to, I I presume your learning curve over the last four years has been pretty massive. What recommendations do you have for coaches and that can be strength and conditioning coaches and also physiologists who haven't ever worked in para sport and are coming in, interested or coming into that area? Yeah, you know, how would you go about it or how would you recommend that they resource themselves?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think what I've learned the most just working with para-athletes is just the the need to be more vocal and give better coaching cues. Mm-hmm. And I, again, a lot of these guys have altered movement patterns. They, you know, physically can't do some things. This is, I, I think too, uh, video feedback helps very well. So with with exercises, you know, showing them Showing them where their deficiencies are, showing them where their altered movement patterns are, and again, just being able to better coach and cue these exercises. Um, I think that's one of the the main things that I've noticed versus working with you know general population athletes. Really do well with with uh, with better feedback and with better cues with video feedback. Um, so that's that's the the area that I've noticed the most in improvement in.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and Stuart, what about? Football coaches who may be looking to come into opportunities within the para side of things,
1: get involved. <laughs> just do it. Right? Don't don't be afraid. It is. Uh, I've I've had the pleasure of working in this area for for maybe twenty years now. I've also worked and continued working in the mainstream game. It is it's fantastic. You learn a lot about about yourself. Uh, you become a better coach because you're always adapting and coming up with new strategies the individuals whether it be staff or players that you meet in this area uh, it's remarkable the stories that that mm. you hear so like and the players that the staff that, that you meet their their backgrounds are so varied maybe more varied than you would get in the mainstream game so it, it's just interesting I'll, i've learned more about myself coaching within this realm than than i think i would have if i stayed in, in the mainstream sector mm. completely and any coach that i've worked with that's come in whether it be for one camp or you know one year with us has, has always said the same thing it's been one of the best experiences that they've had and they've they've walked away being a better coach uh, so mm. so yeah my, my advice would be don't think about it being para sport don't think about it being cp just come in coach learn listen and enjoy, and if you do that, yeah. you'll you'll succeed.
2: To piggyback on what Stuart was saying there, I think what's remarkable working with these athletes is you know they're not doing it for fame, they're not doing it for money, they're just doing it because they love the game and they want to keep playing. Mm. So the just the attitude of of these players in 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 camp, and it's just enjoyment that they want to be there, and you know, willing to sacrifice and work hard. It's uh, it's quite a remarkable group to to work with, and it. It's been really eye-opening to me to be able to work with these athletes and and kind of see their their attitude towards not only sport but life in general.
0: Mm -hmm. And do you find that the athletes themselves are really good at giving you feedback on, you know, if you're trying to do a drill or a skill or, you know, something in the gym, for example, are they – part of that learning equation in terms of you they're really good at giving you feedback on what their body's actually doing and why they can't execute that skill and perhaps help problem solve on on how to do that better
1: i'll jump in first from the field and and let daniel talk about the gym the one thing they never say and i'll I'll tell you this again working with hundreds of, of of athletes in this area i never hear i can't do that you know, uh, they will always, and, and I say this, they will always, uh, every athlete that I've worked with finds, an, finds a way of adapting. And then yep. it will be me watching and analyzing and say, well, okay, well, I can see that you've adapted it in this way. Maybe I make some corrections and support mm-hmm. them further. But I've never, truly, I've never set up a drill, a practice and a player has has turned around to me and said well that's that's not possible because of this or or that that's that's not the attitude it's it's always uh sounds cliche but it's it's a can do attitude Mm -hmm. and which is great to work with as a coach and then maybe it's just me going in there and and making further corrections or adaptations to to improve that but Mm -hmm. on on the field of play I've, i've never really had to to take that that mindset of well I better not do this because he or she won't be able to do it uh, it's yeah. always been like let's, let's do this and and let's work with it
0: yeah and I, I guess that brings up the fact that they automatically in their own mind just go oh, okay I, I've got to find a way of doing this and so I'm, I'm going to try it this way and they don't even necessarily I, it's probably not even a a conscious thing that they do. It's just something that they do naturally. And so just by observing how they've done that, you can sort of learn the way that they've adapted that might help somebody else or, you know, as you say, that you can kind of tweak a little bit further.
2: We really encourage them to be vocal. And this team is very vocal in in feedback to us on on how how their body is feeling. You know, if if one of their players one of our players is on their affected side and they're very fatigued, they're feeling very tight there. They won't hesitate to come up and, and let us know. And if that's kind of a uh, a team thing that we're seeing, you know, we can have a we can have a recovery session. We can really work on that, or we can, you know, mm-hmm. the athletic trainers um, do some manual therapy. But we we encourage them to be vocal. And for the most part, they are very vocal in telling us, you know, what's what's going on, how their body is feeling. Um, as Stuart said, it's it's never you know something that they can't do, but it's just hey, this is this is what I'm feeling when I'm doing this. You know, I I feel like I'm going to be cramping during the game. What do you suggest I do? So it, it's very uh, very vocal in a, a good good environment for them to I feel speak up about anything that they have an issue with.
0: Yeah, and that that pretty much then go has already answered my what was going to be my next question, which was and what were your recommendations to athletes? <laughs> but any any additional recommendations that you have for potential Footballers, people who've maybe even not really played much football, but might be interested in getting into CP football.
1: Yeah, like I think any athlete out there or potential athlete out there who's got an interest in in soccer and football, or or even just want to get there and, and try another sport. Uh, mm-hmm. There, there's an environment and there's there's something for you. So find first of all find an environment, probably be a, a football team or. Track and field program or a swimming program. Find mm-hmm. somewhere that you feel comfortable. Find somewhere that you can find enjoyment, and and then from there, the, the journey will will open up. The pathway will open up. That that will either be continuing uh, in that sport or you know finding another another avenue and another discipline. But for me, it's it's about getting out there, taking that first step, whether that be with with a parent with a friend, with a peer with the same disability uh, mm. but getting out there, give it a try. If it doesn't work that first time, if it's not for you, that's not failure, that's a lesson. Go mm. and try it again or go and try something different. If something doesn't work the first time, it's okay. Failure is an opportunity to learn. So go and try a different sport, go and try a different coach and yep. eventually you'll find something that that fits you and your pathway and journey will will begin. Uh, or will continue. I will say from from there.
0: Yep, Daniel. Any anything to add to that?
2: Stuart answered that pretty well, but I'd say the the same thing. I mean, taking taking that first step and getting out there, and it's amazing, kind of what you know a team does for you mentally and and physically. Mm-hmm. Just getting out there and being part of a team can help just so much in, in all areas of of life. And I think it, you get out there, take that first step, make some friends, realize you enjoy it, and then you know, the rest is the rest is history. You found something that, you know, you want to do regularly in your life.
0: Mm. Awesome. Thank you so much, guys. You've certainly given us a pretty clear picture of what para-soccer is, is about, at least from the CP soccer side or CP football. So I appreciate your time. You don't get away with one last question each, which is what's your favorite food?
1: I am going to say my favorite food and this this is going to sound boring but it really isn't I, I love it I genuinely I genuinely love salad like I do with a nice dressing I, I could eat salad all day although it I is know, really boring I know I know I know I know <laughs> I know as a sports scientist and nutritionist I'm going to say well you're not getting a lot there but I love salad well, well it depends
0: on what the salad looks like so for well, you well, what it's... what does a salad look like
1: what's your what what
0: would your ideal salad be
1: it's my ideal salad and you beat me to the punch there my ideal (laughs) salad is in a bun on top of a burger (laughs) Uh, (laughs) (laughs) yeah i i I genuinely love all food and, and coming from from scotland we have Indian food. I love, I love a curry. Uh, I love salads. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a foodie. I enjoy all, all you know, seafood, uh, everything there. So difficult for me to answer, but uh, salad in a bun with a burger with, with lots of
2: ketchup. There you
0: go. Okay. And Daniel?
2: Uh, I like any food that's not from Scotland, that's for sure. Um, I would So
0: no, no haggis for you?
2: No shepherd's pie? No, none of that. None of that. I, I had to live in. in england for you know 16 months and and eat that terrible quality food i mean that that is their best food is indian food because it doesn't come from um, i would say i love uh, i love mexican food and in particularly uh tacos because you can do uh-huh. so much variation with tacos and yeah if i had to choose one thing to eat for the rest of my life it would, it would probably be tacos
0: uh-huh well yeah and i've the the mind bend of indian food in in scotland is that you have beautiful indian food served to you by very indian or pakistani looking people but it comes with a scottish accent and that is a real mind bend (laughs) yeah there is (laughs) (laughs) yep well thank you guys so much. I really appreciate your time, your energy, your passion and Stuart, you know, I can't believe that in 2003 you were already working in para football. Like I I, I think that's like I would have said that that's pretty early days at that point in time for a federation to be to be really invested in that. So I think that's that's terrific. And it's obviously given you some great grounding. And I don't know how you manage nine teams. There's obviously a lot of travel and a lot of having to change your brain from one team to another pretty regularly. But yeah, fantastic. And we wish you all the best at Parapan American Games in Chile. Hope it all goes well.
1: Thanks for having us, Liz. We, we really appreciate it. And all the best to you with, with your
2: teams in the future as well. Yeah, thank you, Liz. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having us on.
0: I really like the way that Daniel and Stuart use the rest of the team, not only the athletes, but also other staff members to collaborate together and to adjust things on the fly rather than sticking to a particular process that is amenable to change. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have any feedback, please leave it on our website and I'd really like some suggestions on people you'd like to hear from. I hope you'll join us next time when we talk to Raquel Teixeira, who is a sports nutritionist working in Portugal. And we're going to be talking specifically about the work she does with athletes with an intellectual impairment.